0: Welcome to Sex and Life. It's a podcast that talks about sex and how it, it, uh, interacts with our daily lives.
1: Give up on interfaces. Like, interfaces,
0: in- interacts, whatever interfaces. That, uh, that was producer Joe. How are you doing, producer Joe? I am well. Excellent. I'm quite well. And, uh, today is part two of the Will McLean,
1: uh, interview. We've actually brought somebody back. We, that we, we brought say we're Will. Back. <laughs> oh, Exactly.
2: Do you have it's, a problem with people not coming back generally? Oh, uh, <laughs> because they're not back
1: yet. I'm like, I want all these people to come back well, and none of them have been coming back.
2: I, I'm and happy to be back. I had a great time on the last show. So we we had
0: a great time back. talking yeah. to you too as well. Uh, just to go over a little bit, uh, if anybody hasn't listened to uh, the first part.
1: Go listen to that part. Well, go, that's go listen to that again. part. That's it.
0: Um,
2: <laughs> Cover. Done. Will has a company called Sibian Toronto. And how long have you had the company? Uh, the comp, Sibian Toronto itself has been established just a couple of years now. Um, I've been in the adult industry, uh, for a decade and a half, almost more than that now. And, uh, just catch us up a bit on, on what Sibian Toronto is. So Sibian Toronto is predominantly, first and foremost, a service company, um, where I bring Sibians, which are the world's most powerful vibrator. Um, I will bring one to your house or your hotel room, or you can come to the studio. Um, and try one out because they, they tend to be a bit cost prohibitive for the average person. They run about 2400 bucks. So for $150 for a night, you can experience the Sibian without having to commit to purchasing a Sibian. So I'll bring one by. I'll set it up. I'll show you how to use it and get the best experience out of it. I'll give you some pro tips. Uh, and then I'll leave you to it and I'll come back the next day and pick up the pieces. Um,
0: but yeah, vibrations. The Sibian is, is, the world's largest vibrator, basically.
2: Yeah, it's the most powerful vibration unit that you can get commercially.
0: Um, and you'll learn more. You can go check out his site, uh, Sydney in Toronto, or you can listen to the last episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but something that that you you discussed when I saw you uh, presenting at the Playground Conference was the history of vibration. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that, to me, was extremely interesting. It
2: yeah. was just... Because it's not really something I'd ever thought about before. Vibration, has, vibration in sex play has a fascinating history in terms of the misconceptions that brought it about. You know, is this idea of um, curing women of hysteria. You know, the term that is like colloquially used today to describe when someone is crazy is rooted and steeped in this massive history of misogyny and patriarchy and um, medical misconceptions and and cruelty. Um, and sort of the ignorance of men. Yeah. You know, and, and, and it's, it's interesting that the ignorance of men has brought about this revolution of sexuality for women, um, in, in the most, um, in the most, uh, unsuspected way. You know, it's really kind of a surprising background to it all. So when was the first vibrator made? So the first the first vibrator that was made for the intent of bringing about orgasm for women, um, the first actual commercially available device was made in around 1910. Um, between 1900 and 1910 is is about when it first came out. It was a company uh, in England um, that was they were trying to cure hysteria. So. For the 300 years prior to that discovery, hysteria was the idea that a woman was hysterical because there was some sort of imbalance in her body. Now, much, much earlier in history, there was the idea of the wandering womb syndrome. So the the theory of the day, the medicine of the day, was that a woman's uterus was actually wandering around inside her body. It was popping out for a walk. And depending on where it was going, it was interfering with the organ systems. And that was what was causing these emotional duress. So hysteria was... It started off as being sort of, you know, the idea of being emotional, and incurably emotional. Um well I mean that's the that's know. the history of the hysterectomy, right? Exactly. Anything that has hystero as as the root of it really kind of deals with that specifically. And in it it's the idea that these humors of the body were affected because this the uterus was just sort of Popping out for a bit, going around back and messing up with your, you know, your functions of your liver. It was moving up by the heart and it was messing with the turmoil of the heart. So all these things were happening and doctors were looking for ways to settle the uterus. So they were, they figured if they could calm it down and get it to go back where it's supposed to be, a woman would act with some amount of decorum. It was the idea because, you know, at the time, of course, men were super stoic emotion was you know not shown in public and doctors weren't licensed either, were they? I mean, well, doctors doctors at the time, you have to remember, like, you know, doctors... They were all b- barbers. Well, I was going to say, you know, if you go back further, and like, far enough, if you go back from you, sort of the dark ages into the early industrial age, they were, barbers were the doctors. And, you know, and the the dentists and the barbers were kind of, everyone that had a knife could kind of fix something. It didn't matter <laughs> if they were sewing up a pig, pulling the tooth or cutting out your guts. Uh, they were all sort of engaged in this stuff. And then medicine evolved in sort of the idea of the roots of modern medicine, um, you know, in the Hippocratic Oath. And those sort of things started evolving uh, in, in the mid-centuries of or like early England and Paris. They, you know, there was a lot of medicine starting to be practiced where they were starting to map cadavers, which was a big, big deal at the time. You know, um, there was no real way to kind of map out a cadaver. Because they were such butchers. Yeah. It was it was not impossible for them to kind of cut into something and not destroy all of it. Because they would just fillet these things. So they, their their knowledge of anatomy was pretty limited to muscular and skeletal, skeletal remains. They weren't really sure what the organs did a lot of the time. There was a lot of assumptions. And there was all these conflicting ideas from one area of the world to another area of the world. Someone would travel off to one place and come back and be like, everything's wrong. And then the next person would do it and be like, everything's wrong. Um, it took forever to x-ray, it took forever to photograph. Things just weren't discovered in any real space and time. It would be 50 years between any new discovery being actually um, uh, adopted as medicine. you know. And uh, and it usually was the span of a doctor's career in those leaps. You know, It would be the old school had to die before the new school was accepted. Yeah. So at the
1: time a doctor could expect to make a single breakthrough in his career,
2: if, and that would be it. Yeah, yeah if. if that, you'd be you'd be lucky if a doctor adopted a breakthrough in the terms of his medical career. Like so, washing their hands. Yeah, well that, and that's exactly it. You know, like it wasn't it wasn't until the 1900s that doctors decided washing their hands were the thing cuz germs weren't really um anything more than an outlandish theory until the early 1900s. You know, in the we're talking about like 1850 through 1900, germs were sort of like they were invisible. They were a theory. No one really had kind of labeled and nailed it down yet. So because of that, people, some doctors would wash their hands. Some wouldn't, you know, they didn't even change bandages regularly after a surgery. You know, people would be gangrenous and they'd just be like, oh, well, it didn't work. And they just let that person die. (laughs) They didn't ever assume that cleaning anything made sense. (laughs) They were using old tools. So, you know, sorry, (laughs) huge tangent there. But going back to the idea of uh, hysteria, it was this idea that doctors were trying to look for a cure for women's emotions, essentially. When they started listing um, hysteria and looking for what were the signs and symptoms of hysteria, well, it was anything. It was it was absolutely anything at all that a man didn't want to deal with, with his wife or his daughters. Or she cries certain, too easily. Crying, uh, laughing was hysterical. She wants sex all the time. Wanting sex, not wanting sex. All of those things would be hysteria. In the end of it, in, in uh, some medical texts, there was over 75 pages of symptoms that basically listed every Being hungry, being awake, being asleep. All symptoms of hysteria. The problem was people were being put to death because of it. What was happening is they weren't sentenced to death. But if you couldn't be cured of hysteria, you were sent off to an asylum. And in the asylum... You know, looking at like the 1500s to 1600s, if you were sent off to asylum, sanitary, they were they were just they were basically dungeons. Yeah, they were just they were just jails. Um, Chirpaning was huge. So that was where they would systematically punch holes in your skull to relieve pressure. Right. Which would just they would lobotomize you. They would drill a hole into your frontal lobe or into a different area of your brain. Um, based on something as dubious as phrenology, like the study of the shape of the skull that would tell you where your centers of personality lie. And then hmm. they would be like, well, we don't like that area. That bump has got to go. And they would drill through it and punch a hole in your brain and you'd be a vegetable. And they were like, cured. Hmm. The, the problem with that, of course, no one was washing their hands. Yeah. So your wife cries too much because, you know, you're probably a dick. You've probably ignored her. So you're probably a jerk to her. You might be sleeping with the chambermaid. She's not going to like that. You don't want to stop your behavior. You accuse your wife of hysteria. She goes to a doctor. The physician says she's incurable. They try her, find her not of sound body and mind. She goes off to an asylum. She gets trepanned. No one washes her hand or hands, and she dies of brain infection. You know this was happening to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of women to the point where, in 1800, in England. Um, over half the women in England were diagnosed with hysteria. It was just commonplace. Everyone had it. Every woman had it. Uh, And of course, the only people that could get treatment of any sort were people that could afford it. So uh, poor women, which was like everybody, uh, were just being sent off willingly to these asylums. And, and they, they had commercialized the asylum, of course. Of course. So Kind of like how they're commercializing jails. Exactly. So they were paid for by the state, which meant that the more people that were sent in, the more money the institution got. The institution didn't have to do anything but give them absolutely the base, base, base food and water and places to stay. So, you know, they were making a huge amount of money off p- people being incurable. Doctors that could treat... Um, they were doing what was was manual treatments where essentially what they were doing is they were using their hands to try to induce an orgasm in these women that could afford to pay for it. So their husbands would send them off to these doctors. These doctors would use uh, a a combination of different mineral and massage oils, Uh, usually mineral oil mixed with like lavender, different things that smell nice, that sort of thing, Um, uh, antispasmodics, And uh, they would massage the vulva um, by hand in these sort of operating theaters. And they were like, you know, you think like sort of Victorian era corsets and bustles and dresses and gowns. You know, no one saw anybody naked at the time. They would be ushered into these beautiful, beautiful Edwardian Victorian homes. They would sit up with their feet in stirrups with a curtain in front of them. And there's like, you know, lush velvety curtains. And these doctors would come in and roll up their sleeves, warm up their hands with oil, and then reach through the curtain and not look because they weren't allowed to look because that would be indecent. So they wouldn't look and they would reach through and they would just sort of fumble about in there trying to induce what they referred to as a paroxysm. And a paroxysm was a paralytic fit uh, that would settle the uterus back into place. Now, of course, the women were told they're not to feel pleasure from this, right? That would be indecent. Women at the time, the medicine of the day dictated that women couldn't feel pleasure from any sort of genital touch unless it was by their husband's penis, right? Which we know today to be medical fact and true. (laughs) Um, Women at the time couldn't, couldn't have an orgasm. It wasn't medically possible. That was that was something that just didn't happen. It's, it's um, a myth. It was a myth. There was the myth of the female orgasm. They could be given pleasure by their husband's penis. Only by their husband's penis. Um, and the penis was the only thing that was able to complete them and kind of complete this, like sort of close that circuit for them. Um, So these doctors weren't doing anything indecent because they weren't bringing the woman to orgasm. They were giving her a paroxysm, which was inducing this sort of spasm that would settle their body and cool their humors. And then everything would sort of settle down. And the, the beauty of that being, of course, is that it was something that didn't cure them. They'd have to come back for treatment regularly. And if you'd found the doctor that could do it, you know, a youthful, vigorous doctor with strong hands and some amount of like stamina they would go through now, of course the failure rate was enormous mm. you know but it was never the doctor's fault so of course not if he couldn't induce paroxysm it was her fault and they would go back to the hysterical trials back to the asylum. so doctors that could induce paroxysm fairly consistently were very highly valued highly sought um the thing is, these guys hated it. These doctors hated it. They didn't enjoy their job. They looked at it as, like, the most tedious of treatments. It was the most physically laborious treatment that they could perform. Take anywhere from, like, you know, five minutes to 30 to 40 minutes of just massage. And, um, you know, as I'm sure we all kind of knew discovering our sexuality as teens, it's not just like a one-button-press-all kind of thing. So they were... They were blindly fumbling about for an hour at a time. And if she didn't sort of fake her orgasm, she didn't fake an a paroxysm, she was on the chopping block. So it was this back and forth of the whole deal.
0: There are some vibrators that you see in, in uh, like healthcare stores, and they're labeled as uh, uh, muscle massagers.
2: Mm-hmm. Different like personal massagers, right? Yeah, I think you know uh, any of your listeners that are that are old enough to remember catalogs, like the actual physical catalogs. Um, you know, Sears, Hudson's Bay, Consumers Distributing. Consumers Distributing, Consumers Distributing, Consumers Distributing had the personal massager, and it was like sort of this candle-shaped, um, smooth plastic, hard hard smooth plastic, off-white, tapered at the end, screw bottom with a fluted base. And you would drop in a bunch of like, usually I think they was C cell batteries. Um, they were they were the larger cylindrical batteries. You would drop like two or three of those into the tube, screw the end down, and when you turn the end, it would turn the vibrator on. And it was the most simple of the devices. Now that device was created in the 1970s. Um, the Hitachi Magic One, the ubiquitous original Magic One, was created in 1968, hmm. right? And now all these products were. They were made under the auspice of personal body massage. Like, they were kind of labeled under this umbrella, Tom, of personal massagers. And that kind of follows suit from where we were coming from. In 1910, um, when the first Hamilton Beach vibrator was commercially marketed, it was to cure hysteria at home or for physicians. They were incredibly expensive the units before these ones that weren't commercially available, that were only available to doctors um, for the first 10 years that they were kind of discovered from 1888 to I mean, loosely to about, you know, 1910, 1905. Um, they were two man steam powered like, or giant <laughs> electrical. They were, they were often in over 40 pounds, two man sort of operated machines.
0: There's this, this, steam engine vibrator on uh, Boston legal once. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was the funniest thing because you had to pour a little bit of water in and wait for it to warm up mm-hmm, and warm mm-hmm. up and, and then it went and it's it sort just chugs along kind of chugged yeah. along it was really
2: funny to watch they they you know it's it's probably it's not far off from a lot of the original designs like a lot of the original designs were either um, sort of thrusting machines or these like really really vigorous heavy loud, um they would pour out a ton of heat they would shut down the electricity in your house like they would blow circuits if they were plug in models um you have to remember too at the time not all the homes had electricity um the ones that did it was like really old knob and tube wiring Sometimes they could they could take a certain load of of electrical voltage, some of them couldn't. There wasn't a standardized voltage, so it was sort of whatever it could draw. Yeah. It would just melt down machinery or melt down the wire in your house. Like vibrators were causing house fires. People were <laughs> people were like, you know, the people were turning these things on and like melting their walls. Wow. Right? And so the the Hamilton Beach units were sort of more controlled and commercially available. Um, only, you know, lords and ladies and the, the elite would have them in their home, but men were sort of under, they, they were sort of operating on the facade of this. This was a medical device, yeah you know? Um, and that's sort of how it was commercially set out. They were the adverts for these devices. These personal massagers was, you know, they were sort of like, you know, sick of having to go see your doctor for your treatment. Um, stay youthful and, um, rosy cheeked and all these, all the photos and advertising would be these, these, um, pictures of these very, very delicate Victorian women holding these vibrators to their faces, you know, and they were, I think men were often, uh, convinced that these, these devices would be held to your cheeks to get that rosy glow. So a woman would go into her boudoir and hold this thing against her face to warm her cheeks. And that's how they, were, they would stay youthful looking, you know. <laughs> Meanwhile, they were sort of like buried with their frock up about their waist. You know, they would induce themselves into an or, their own orgasm uh, whenever they wanted, you know. And, and, and so the elite had very happy wives um, and, and the men were none the wiser. But in 1920, what happened was they, the, the, the film camera was invented. And, of course, the first thing that we invented with film was porn. And, of course, immediately um, being able to see people on screen uh, in these silent black and white films, one of the first things that they filmed was a woman masturbating with one of these vibrators. And all hell broke loose because all these men of of the time that had been buying these wives, these devices to cure their hysteria, suddenly realized that they had brought their wife, a vibrator that was bringing them about to orgasm, which was replacing the idea that they could have an orgasm without their penis involved. So they were disgusted by the idea and that basically they had two choices. They had the idea that they could ban vibrators entirely and that they could say, you know, they're, there's, they're no longer allowed. They're indecent. Immoral. Yeah. And immoral. Or they could, just put up this whole current of ignorance and that's what they chose to do. They chose to basically started, they just kept marketing as a medical device only. Um, The advertising often was either not allowed or very Puritan in its copy. You know, what it told you it could do was very, very, very vague all the women knew what was going on. They all talked amongst themselves in their drawing rooms and quarters. Yeah. You know, they were like, oh, you have to try this new model. It's outstanding. <laughs> it keeps me so rosy cheeked and youthful. Um, don't tell your husband, you know, get some money, go buy one, order one, what have you. But, um, you know, they were they were still buying them and men were still buying them, but it was sort of this willful ignorance as to why they were buying them. And they sort of ignored Uh, the indecency of it, because I imagine there is, there is, you know, as, as the industrial age wore on, um, women's roles were changing, you know, the suffragette movement picked up steam, uh, quite literally, like it was, it was moving through, um, a lot of the metropolitans, you know, women's rights, uh, women's leagues and chapters, uh, for white rights were coming up. And, All of those things were starting to bring women to the forefront where men were more and more hesitant to argue with these ladies' groups. You know, a lot of the men of the day were bachelors and then married into families. Uh, To marry into a certain family often meant marrying into an educated family. A lot of the educated young women at the time were becoming more and more versed in feminism and women's rights. So hard be it for them to, to try to deny them access to these things yeah so they were because of medicine because of what they were trying initially to incure which was hysteria and because of trying to keep women under their thumbs they inadvertently invented the vibrator which sort of replaced a lot of them in the bedroom and uh kind of took away their power of their penis to be the only thing in their women's life to induce pleasure yeah and at the same time spurred on this whole rights to feminism.
0: Now, i seen we were talking about the cylindrical vibrator, mm-hmm. right? But I've seen other ones from around the same era.
2: Like the wall model, W H W A H L. It's like a flat disc on like almost like a gun shape. Yeah. Gun, like but you, old can school guns. you can change discs. You can, there's different discs that you stick on. Like, so the, that was the company wall, which is ubiquitous now with Barber's tools. They make uh hair clippers and shavers and hair dryers and products like that. They were also one of the companies that established their branding and, and time on making vibrators. So like Hamilton beach, who makes the George Foreman grill now. Yeah. Um, I love that grill. The, it's a great grill. Yeah. It's a great grill. but they got their start by making vibrators. Huh? That's that's how they were making appliances. You know, vibrators um, were at one point more common than the clothes iron. You know, it was like, it was sort of vibrators, clothes iron, washing machines. Wow. That was sort of home appliances. Yeah. The evolution of. And these companies that sort of started doing one thing, started making several things because they would have tool and dye that could do it.
0: Well, it makes sense, though, because it's vibrator. What did you say after that? Vibrator or something? Clothes iron. Clothes iron yeah. and the washing machine. Yeah. It's... I find vibrators are very necessary in any home I live they're, in.
2: They're, they're a necessary home a appliance. A necessary are, home appliance. I get one in the house before a TV, that's for sure. <laughs> they're, they're way more entertaining. It's the idea, too, um, this idea that these the companies were making these things because they knew they were selling. They were kind of, you know, everyone had to pretend that, that they weren't making them for what they were made for. But these companies that are out today, um, a lot of them made their mark or or started got in their funding and started to kind of establish their presence in a in a commercial electronics market by making these devices hmm. you know because they were selling they were selling consistently so um, is there a sony vibrator uh, you know what I don't think there is I don't know that there is I have I don't know that I've seen one Come maybe on a sony through, step up maybe through a uh, sony uh, there
1: they've always been a media company yeah everything they do ties into media computers televisions games
2: so in 1968, when Hitachi developed the magic wand, they, they kind of did it knowing slash not knowing what it was going to be used for. Yeah. It was legitimately a wand vibrator for sore muscles. You know, um, that's what they had engineered it for. Like you can put a ton of pressure on that thing. So they were, they were meant to really relieve sore muscles. Um, when it kind of got back to them what they were being used for, they were okay with it for a while until it was started again in the leap forward in porn in the 70s um and then you know it, with with the video cassettes and vhs porn and betamax and all of that uh it started they started to really recognize why it was the most popular home device that they had and so they were actually going to stop making them. Really? Yeah, they were actually, They Hitachi wanted to, to remove themselves from that market entirely because they're a company of propriety. They really are a family name company. So they kind of wanted to drop it entirely. A company called Vibramax. Uh, is it Vibramax or Vibratech? I'd have to check it out. But uh, another company uh, bought the rights to distribute it. So Hitachi took their name off the product. Still manufactures it, sells it to this other company, and that company now distributes it. And so now it's called the original Magic One instead of Hitachi Magic One. Yeah. And there's there's almost no difference between the model that was made in 1968 to the model of today. There's a little label difference. That's pretty much it. It's, otherwise, it's exactly the same. Um, but but that company, it was it was that idea of they wanted to remove themselves from it, but it still makes the money. So they didn't want to drop it entirely. So now they just have the distribution rights allotted to somebody else that goes and takes care of it for them. Yeah. That's pretty
0: clever
1: to do, though. I mean, I, a lot of other companies have done that. Such a weird um, uh, question for a company to ask themselves. We're making money doing this. This mm-hmm. is why we do this. But yeah, so that's, that is the best workaround.
2: Well, there was this whole thing with, Jap- with Japan. Um, what happened in, in Japan was when the sex toy revolution started, um, in the mid seventies, you know, up until that point, it had been mostly American companies. Um, there was a company in Niagara Falls that was manufacturing vibrating devices. Um, again, sort of not really saying what they were. Um, there was a couple of American companies like, and, you know, companies like wall Hamilton beach, all these companies were making these vibrating devices and everyone was sort of like, just sort of happy to go along with it. Uh, and then there was a ruling in, in, I think it was 1970 in Texas, and it was sort of like an anti-porn legislation, Anti, um, it was a whole morality ruling where they, they, you couldn't advertise sex toys anymore. Um, you couldn't sell them in certain states. There was a whole ban across America on certain products. They really tried to pull them out. And of course, the states that could sell them, people were traveling to California to get them, companies has to start really relocating. The Japanese jumped on that. And in the mid seventies, they really started marketing and making their own sex toys. And in the mid eighties and around 84 to 86, the rabbit was invented in Japan. the now, famous the, rabbit, the famous rabbit. And now the thing, like, there are some iconic vibrators, right? The Hitachi magic wand is a, is an iconic vibrator. The, the rabbit is a, a iconic vibrator. Um, some of the new products are starting to make their names sibian uh which has been around for you know over two decades the uh, the we vibe the we vibe which is you know is amazing amazing like only product about 5 years old right it's not very old yeah I, I i'd have to look at the original release date for their first one but it's changed enormously um it's become a, like it's one of the the best selling couples vibrators out there you know so and the thing too the market on that is now like You know, ads in normal beauty magazines and write ups in Oprah and, you know, people talk about it. Um, But back in the 70s, people were again sort of doing this whole ignorance is bliss. And then the 80s with VHS porn, you could get, you know, 10 movies in a giant brown paper envelope delivered mm-hmm. to your door from a catalog yeah. you know and that's that was my introduction to pornography was like you know like the big brown nice. manila envelope full of Betamax tapes <laughs> you know? so and I
1: mean, we had the the baby blue twos on uh, City TV oh yeah which is 12 o'clock on a Friday yeah so I would VHS record very specific scenes from those sure and they you... had to waste time with story and... yeah
2: and you would make you would make a whole compilation of boobs yeah right of like boobs in different, different yeah, genres boobs. right
1: and that was it and it was intermixed you know? with the uh, episodes of the Red Green show, nice. He was a really big fan of that that's, show. that's a
2: weird combo. That's Boob a weird combo. Is my
1: favorite palindrome.
2: Yes, yeah, yeah. It's definitely one of my favorite words out there. Um, also, one of my favorite things. One of my favorite nouns. <laughs> it's 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 just. It just it permeates through my whole life. the the whole thing with with that too and like scrambled porn. Remember, like like uh, viewer's oh, yeah. choice scrambled viewers porn, choice is where first you, choice you'd or... sit there and and cross your fingers hoping it would clear up it for came a second time. Sometimes it would clear it up, and you'd be through. like, yes, and you'd press record. Yeah. Um, anyways, but I digress. So you know, because because shipping became easier, you know, home delivery became easier in the eighties as well, and catalog buying became a thing. Consumers to distribute and really had their heyday in the eighties. People were buying sex toys, but they were buying specifically marketed sex toys. The problem with Japan is they have a morality clause where they can't have any toy that looks like a penis. So all their mm-hmm. toys were made to look like animals. I
0: heard that actually started out because when they were um, selling to the U.S., the U.S. said, hey, look, we don't want anything pornographic. That was so because of that Texas law. Everything was was pixelated. If it was an actual penis, or they started getting like in, in comics and stuff like that, cartoons, they get fucked by like trees or tentacles.
1: That tentacles, tentacles, tentacles. Yeah, that got... was
2: the big thing with hentai. It's 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 sort of it's a little bit of like um, they did it to follow suit, and because they were establishing their laws at the same time about pornography, adopted as their own, right? So they knew that the U.S. market was going to be their biggest market for sex toys. Texas at the time still had those statues about nothing can look like a penis. Otherwise, if it vibrates and it looks like a penis, it's against the law. If it's a dildo that looks like a penis, it was fine. Right now the 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 Japanese took it one step further and just started making things that were these animal shapes, dolphins and dolphins and rabbits and rabbits rabbits were like little samurais, you know, with domed helmets that were shaped just like a penis you know, but they had eyes, but they had eyes. So that made it not a penis. So they would make all these things. And the rabbit kind of came out of that. And, um, those toys were massive, massive, massive sellers. And then, you know, uh, in the mid nineties, uh, and, and late nineties, uh, they started appearing in movies they started appearing in TV shows sex in the city had their actual rabbit habit episode and that revolution that one episode revolutionized the entire sex toy industry because immediately upon that episode airing every store that carried a rabbit was sold out for weeks wow weeks and weeks of just com- like you had to mm-hmm. you had to go cross state lines to find one of these toys because every woman in the world was watching that show at that time um they all ran out and bought it immediately, because it was okay. Suddenly, you know, and you also gave it the, the the illusion of bragging rights. You know, these these women that everyone had a character on the show they could kind of relate to. Yeah, Um, you know that each one had their sort of own pathos and 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 identity, and you could kind of be like, oh yeah, I'm more Samantha than I am Charlotte. Blah blah blah. Uh, hooking up with Mister Big was yeah, it right? Was it yeah, wrong? It was okay. You know, with all these <laughs> things. It, it kind of it, it, the show was. As ridiculous the show got, it was revolutionary in terms of women being able and owning their sexuality in a way that didn't involve men as the core focus of their conversation in the sense that they were doing it for the men so much as they were, the men were props to establish their own sexual personalities. Right. And the, in that show, men really were props. And so just like the sex toy, it was OK to kind of talk about that and own that. So suddenly women weren't embarrassed to walk into adult stores, which were primarily aimed at men. Like they were mostly shady video stores, you know, that you could get some dildos and butt plugs and stuff on the yeah. wall buy the, the VHS cassettes where you could rent them. Suddenly you could go into these shops that were aimed at men. And that's when sex stores for women owned by women, run by women were starting to pop up on the scene, um, and then you know in the 2000s, that's when all these other companies really started following suit and taking note. Companies that had been producing toys uh, cheaply, uh, mass manufacturing things that broke really quickly, like this, the you know the bullet vibes or the yeah. wires would well, always come out of them. Well, and you know? and
0: like the much like the the original ones, you know the cylindrical ones that take yeah. two double uh, A
2: batteries. Yeah. When it comes to vibrators, you really do get what you pay for. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's almost like a dollar per minute value of a lot of them. Like they really are, if you spend 30 bucks on a vibrator, you can plan to get only a couple months out of it and then sort of it's going to burn out. It's going to burn out. The motor is going to burn out or the wiring, the soldering is going to be super cheap. They're going to be impossible to keep clean.
0: I have a a fun factory Mm -hmm. that is, I believe, completely waterproof. Uh, it comes with its own charging stance. So you don't have to worry about batteries. Mm-hmm. I've had it for, I want to say about seven years. German engineering. And it is just as powerful as the day I
2: bought it. Yeah. They're, you know, when you, when you invest in your toys, it's like anything else. And you know, when I talk to people about purchasing toys, I'm like, amortize that over your orgasms, like dollar per orgasm value for the life of the toy expectancy. <laughs> like it really is kind of the way to budget what you want. Like, you can buy those cheap silver bullet toys for anywhere between $15 to $30. You know, it comes with a remote with a wire that leads to a little plastic, um, plastic plated, yeah. like chrome looking thing. But those, the the wires will pull out, um, the toy will be full of. Every type of bacteria you can imagine, because you can't clean internally. They're never waterproof. If they are, it's just because they've got sort of like a skin over the whole thing. And Some rubber around where you, yeah, the way. Yeah, and it's not going to be—it's not going to be medical grade silicone. Like it's all sort of—you know—they're—they're they're pretty sketchy toys. But y- you buy them sort of as like a one-off gifts or little little things to try something out. But when you invest in something, you know, if you you step up and go Fun Factory or Lilo or Nomi Tang, some of the companies out there that have um really put a huge amount of R and D into these products. They last. And they last for a long, long time. You know, some of these these companies uh have one year full coverage and then like ten year satisfaction on them, right? So if there's a problem with it over the ten years, like if the the silicone degrades, they'll replace it for you. Hmm. You know, they'll stand behind their products because you drop two to three hundred dollars yeah. on that. You know? Yeah but, I think mine was around Two two fifty, somewhere around yeah. there. Yeah, well, that's the other thing too is the price point has stepped up enormously, right? Like before, hundred bucks for a vibrator was really expensive, yeah, and that was the rabbit habit that kind of established that. You know, you could spend one hundred fifty bucks on a rabbit,
0: mm.
2: but that was only supply and demand. You know, now you look at rabbits and they're back down to about seventy five bucks for a rabbit, yeah, uh, for your basic sort of traditional looking rabbit. But like that, the wee Vibe. That's mm-hmm. what two hundred and change. Yeah, well, it depends on the model. Yeah, it can it can move up pretty quick. Um, one ninety anywhere between one ninety and two fifty for a Wevibe four plus, which is the newest one that has the app. Wow. Um, but that's you know it's a Bluetooth device. It's is it's as men like Bluetooth. It's got as well. It's as as, <laughs> as a tech person, it's got as much tech as your phone. Like they're really. It's, and it's, it's gotta be
0: fun to play with too. You know, you go out to a restaurant or something just because oh, yeah. you can. You can turn it on from your phone. Yeah, while it's yeah. in your partner sitting across the table or no at
2: notices. Yeah,
0: a, a, a conference at work that's always fun during you know a big meeting at
2: work. You just turn it on a little bit. Well, I think we covered this on the last show too. The idea that you could like you could be. In a different country, your partner could have be wearing the We Vibe, you could be on Skype and controlling their pleasure from across the world. Like that really revolutionizes communication in a very intimate setting. A lot of companies that that's their new goal. A lot of companies, there's a lot of startups on Kickstarter, Indiegogo, of companies trying to um personalize these social communications that we've established, right? So, you know, you might meet someone on OKCupid or a dating site uh, that's in a different state or a different country from where you are. And you might strike up a very genuine, intimate relationship with them. Uh, You might move it to Skype. You might move it to phone. You might move it to Facebook, all these things, you know, different boundaries, different social paradigms Mm -hmm. and social boundaries these days the big leap has always been the distance right but not everybody has to have skin on skin contact to be sexual with another person yeah you know sexting is 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 a very intimate sex play common thing you know and it's super common um and it's how a lot of people start to intimate their new uh sexual dynamics with people you know you start flirty with the chats and the chats get more and more graphic and eventually you're having um, you're having literal sex, like in terms of texting to each other yeah. before you're, you've even kissed, you know, and you've sent photos of each other back and forth or, uh, Snapchats, <laughs> you know, you've seen each other naked or touching each other, um, before you even touch them.
0: Have you, have you, you know? ever
2: watched Big Bang Theory? Yeah, I've seen it. Yeah. Uh,
0: do you remember the, the episode where they had the kissing machine? No, I missed that. I haven't seen okay. that Okay. They were talking about, uh, uh leonard and priya being in a long distance relationship right he's in the u.s she's in india and uh howard and raj were exploring this new technology which was the kissing machine so they both put their mouth on their own machines separated but it felt it oh, did like whatever the other one was right. doing okay and which was you know funny because it's howard, howard and raj, raj right who you know Clearly, have some issues that they're not discussing, right? Right.
2: <laughs> but I and I was wondering, is that like a real thing? Well, it's the the kissing machine is is the device for the show, but there there, uh, but that kind of comes into play with what a lot of companies are looking at now. So, any sort of sort of touch sensor based technology, there are companies out there um, where one person has an insertable, one person has in a receptacle, and so you know you can put the receptacle on your penis and as you thrust that communicates with the device on the other end. And that device is thrusting at the same rhythm, same pace, same sort of So thing. I can disappoint so it on an international scale. So now you can disappoint across the world, yes. you know, but what's interesting <laughs> about those products is that you could be, you could be, um, you know, so let's say like a binary male has this receptacle. Uh, binary females could have the other end of that device, right? The penetrative part of that device, but that doesn't mean you have to have a matching set with a partner. It means that you could communicate with anybody out there that has it. So now you can have almost like a glory hole experience, like an anonymous experience with somebody across the globe that just has that. So you would just, you would type in your access code pass. It would hook up to the Wi-Fi. They would be like, you know, who's out there on the, in the chat rooms, so like, like
0: back in the day when I would troll uh, ICQ,
2: yeah, and it's sort of like it goes back to those like sort of chat room ideas of like who wants to have some you know sexting going on here, you know, which or,
0: itself is really blown up too, right? Yeah. I mean, you used to have things like ICQ where you could
2: randomly maybe find someone, and now there's it's Grindr. Like, well, there's and it's even just like you know it, it, it goes so quickly like grinders, grinders almost like the precursor just to anonymous meetups. Right. But, you know, you get online and there's um, uh, what's the the one where it randomly selects a video.
1: Oh, uh, like Omega.
2: Yeah. Omega one of them for sure. And there's there's a couple other ones as well. And it's this idea where you you, you know, you're online with your webcam and it just randomly brings up somebody on the other end and you kind of just you just skip through until you find someone who's you know sort of like half under their covers and you're like oh here we go that's
0: that's what i did with and the it's icq just,
2: it's just dick stick 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 but it's it's out there and um the next stage of that is that everybody would sort of have some something of these devices one end of either end of these devices and it doesn't mean that both people can't just have receptacles and that that's going to communicate
1: too i've seen a lot of artwork lately and a lot of people speaking yeah. out against the fact that people becoming so attached to their devices and their phones is hurting the way people connect with one another mm-hmm. but it's it almost feels like it's a halfway point like we can actually significantly improve how connected we can get with one another but we haven't quite gotten to that point yet so we're in kind of yeah. the, the flux between this we can't fully justify it mm-hmm. it's still better to actually connect in person but they're taking such great steps towards this where actually it will not replace real life but will Act as a substitute when the substitute is as good,
2: yeah there's I think the difference is is that there is the rules of this new world haven't been established because the technology changes faster than we can keep up with, and it evolves so quickly you know so many people are saying you know when when Facebook started really taking over, you know, and there's like it's the largest country on the planet if it was a country yeah right? like there's it's the greatest singular population in the world now is facebook mm-hmm. Facebook nation. And and with the you know the billions of people that are on Facebook at this time, it's the greatest reach anyone's ever had socially to be outside of their uh specific physical demographic or, or, or geographic location. So, you know, I have friends in different countries that I've never met in person that I have great conversation with. We have a lot of contact in terms of sharing, but it's a very tailored, best spoke experience. They're only people I want to meet because we connected over a like-minded event or a like-minded article or something. So we started talking on that. It could have started an argument and then we've, you know, become friends over our ability to debate with each other. But we tailor our experiences so specifically that there is the danger of um excising anything that upsets us. And in that, I think the danger is that we don't learn coping mechanisms to deal with things that upset us in day-to-day life. And so when something goes wrong, I can't even, or I literally died because I didn't get my coffee the way I wanted it. Yeah. Whereas before it's like, fuck it, you just got the coffee where well, you got the coffee, you deal with it. I think now we expect the, the experience to be so personalized and tailored that we're in danger of not understanding things that we didn't ask for. You know, so we don't get to experience Like Stephen online. Harper? Like, well, we asked for that. Sadly, no. It doesn't matter. You know what? <laughs> it's through how the system works. The, through, through the folly of. But see, I didn't bring parents. up RF, did I? Well, no, no. Because we have bigger know, fish to fry. No, then. nobody, <laughs> nobody, uh, nobody, nobody voted him in. But you know, by not voting, we did right. Pretty much. It's it's that's that's sort of it. it's. I think we get to this point though, where in through social media and technology, we we. Can have more relationships. We can have deeply personal, profound relationships and interactions with people who will never meet. That I love. Um, I have a very, you know. very good
0: friend in, in Calgary. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've known her for about seven years. And just, I love her to death. I love her so much. Uh, we've met like three, four times. mm mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Some of my closest personal relationships evolved online. Same. Um, Absolutely. You know, because the thing, too, that that happens online, which I think is interesting, we have the opportunity to either disguise who we are and throw up a facade of who we want the world to see us as. Now, the question is, is that genuine? Because we want the world to see us as we want to be seen. Mm hmm. Is that our genuine need to be seen that way, or is that how we really feel inside? You know, it's like how authentic is that? I've always just,
0: it? I've always just been me. Mm-hmm. You know, like even uh, when I was doing porn, I used my real name most yeah. of the time.
2: Yeah, I think uh, if anything,
1: it, uh, it it makes you question how genuine you are in the outside world because in your you your real think life. about how you have to behave in school. Mm-hmm. So I was very outspoken. In school. Mm-hmm. So I was often targeted mm-hmm. and it's been like that. It happens to me to do jobs that mm-hmm. I work. I'm outspoken. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't care school, for that. college. They, no, no one does. <laughs> yeah. But no, then I like would, that. but then uh, I would have access to uh, the internet. I must've been around eight or nine or 10 at the time. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I was being myself. Yeah. And that's when I realized looking back, it's like some of the things I said, I don't, I'm not happy about it. Yeah, and it's it's
2: it's how you like you said it's it's sort of how you tailor people's view of you, right? Right. Online, you can type something out, rethink it, go back, type it out more succinctly, or or, or word it in a way that's less offensive. Yeah, I mean, and more I'm conducive. Even not even right now, and I mean,
1: deliberately not touching it for a few days because I'm still fuming about yeah. the previous round.
0: And and sarcasm doesn't come across well on on no. You no. have if, to do slash
1: sarcasm. if somebody doesn't.
0: Yeah. I uh I wrote a a, a bit I think. Couple of years ago, um, called, uh, Christmas, a Jewish conspiracy.
2: <laughs> oh, gee. I don't even want to touch that. Thing. <laughs> just based on the title, I'm going to move way back. And it's, that. it's satirical. It's meant to be tongue in cheek. Yeah. Go back to that. It's meant to be tongue in cheek. And, uh,
0: because, <laughs> but, well, it started yeah. off because there's a whole lot of Christmas songs mm-hmm. that are written by Jewish people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I took that and I just stretched it out to, the extreme. most absurd extreme yeah, sure. that uh, I could think of, and if you don't know me and you read that, you'd be like, "What a fucking idiot, racist jackass!" Yeah. But
2: if you read it and you know who I am, then you're like, "Okay, Eli's just being an idiot, jackass." I, you know, I wrote I wrote a, a piece <laughs> years ago that I was really proud of. I'm I'm half Korean, and I wrote a piece, oh really yeah and I wrote a piece about why Asians are better than you. And, like, and and it was it, it's a, it's a bullet it's a bullet point and and I started it by saying this is this is my penance for not being full Asian so this is this is my goal to kind of stay in the club and it was but they were absolutely absurd things they were absolutely absurd things like Asians used to have the ability to to fly um, but then you know uh, white people with their planes ruined everything and now we're forced to walk <laughs> which is why we're purposely bad drivers to ruin your experience on the road. Um, <laughs> So this you know, sounds a lot like my yeah. So things like just had, just absurdism. I so I, I threw it up on Fet Life. If you're on Fat Life, okay, yeah, I am. I'll, I'll find it. I'll I find have an it. article.
1: It doesn't exist. It was anymore. It was um, relating Apple to uh, Nazi Germany mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. because what I remember from the 80s when they were advertising the Apple computer and 1984 was coming out. Yes, they had that, that
2: actual the video series that they did. Yeah, yeah. And then
1: the, for those of you who haven't
2: seen it. Big room,
1: everyone's all the same. This mm-hmm. one Olympic runner comes in with a mallet, smashes the screen. Yeah. And I remember going to a job interview at Apple in the Holiday Inn. And I swear to God, it was that scene to a T. Everyone yeah. was sitting around, all dressed nice, yeah. all looking yeah. the same. Huge face on the screen addressing yeah. us. Only this time, it was about Apple. I'm like, these guys have completely lost. Yeah, so well, they've
2: they, they've gone from being the underdog to the overlords. Like they yeah. now now that it's that same room, but everyone's got white earbuds. It's it's. Yeah.
0: Uh, I remember a comedian named Mike Dugan. I think it was who said, uh, "My brothers joined a cult." You know, they all dress the same, look the yeah. same, sound the same. Maybe you've heard of it. It's called IBM. Yeah, <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. It's you know it, depends. it just depends. on what side of the fence you're on, right? It's uh, a. <laughs> it's it's interesting. It, wow, we just we really went off tangent there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, I had control not but, succeed. Uh, tech, technology, and, and I, I just did. Uh, I just was was part of a a, a series, a new TV series. Um, dealing with sexuality and one of the interesting episodes that i was involved in uh discussed um online orgies okay right so it's the idea of skyping into an orgy so the idea that you could from the comfort of your home you by yourself or you with a partner could interact with several other couples simultaneously you're all having sex being able to watch each other listen to each other give each other direction, partake in that group sex, but from the, the safety and comfort, but also maybe your schedule, just that's how it lines up. You yeah. know, maybe the best time for you people to have to an orgy. Yeah. Maybe the best time for you to have an orgy is in the morning. So you have an on orgy with a bunch of people in Australia or, you know, in England
1: and Germany.
2: in Germany, you know, like, Oh, that could get messy, but like, it's you know, <laughs> all of these, all of these things can happen and you can have these super intimate sexual relations with people who you'll most likely never, ever meet in person, you know, but being able to carry on with that is is phenomenal. Like it really, if you have, say you're a person that uh, is interested in a very particular kind of kink and your area doesn't support either your cultural choice, your religious choices, your sexual choices, and you don't have that support system, you can get online and have the world at your fingertips to tell you that you're okay and what you're doing is good and fine and healthy and not only tell you that it's okay to do it but give you tips on how to do it better and you could find people and and so, you know whether you manage to 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 bridge out from that place geographically and move to a new area you can move to an area into a whole support system you know or mm. you could just end up on Skype and you know maybe Maybe you're a person who lives in an area where religiously you don't have the freedoms to to be queer, or you don't have the so the U.S. Yeah, yes, yeah, so, so the deep south and Istanbul. <laughs> you know, Istanbul and the deep south, two places in the world. But like you can't, you can't be in certain, you can't be yourself in certain places. But yeah. the technology allows you that outreach, you know, and, and anonymity to do it safely. It's
0: it's funny because I, I find even as as a bisexual male, gays are accepted, straights are accepted. Bisexuals, you're obviously not fucking making pick a choice. Aside, pick, uh, a side, we have, pick a asshole. side, you stupid asshole. We,
2: we have all these, you know, all these discussions, right? It's 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 breakfast or dinner no lunch, no brunch, right? It's this idea of like, you know, it's, it's day or it's nighttime, but there's no dusk. There's no afternoon. There's no middle of the day. It's, it's, it's the, the Kinsey scale. I think, you know, as old as it is and obsolete in some ways, it's still accurate in the sense that it's just varying degrees of one through the other. And it really, without that gray area, you can't determine what is the extremes of either I, anyways right yeah. Like you, if you don't know what's gray you don't know what's black and white yeah you don't there's no juxtaposition and reference for it right if you can't be if there aren't those people that are in the middle of the road where is your balance point like where is the fulcrum yeah. between gay or straight yeah there has to be a middle ground somewhere just by nature of having two defined points there has to be a center point yeah right so anyone that argues that you can't have one and can't have the other simultaneously doesn't understand the laws of physics. There, they're just, there needs to be a fulcrum for that balance. Yeah. You know, and I think as the population of people that are out grows, there's going to be more and more fluid sexuality.
0: I, I, I seem to find that with, um, like my kids,
2: young people. Yeah. We you were know, talking about uh,
0: them. uh, my youngest son is trans
2: mm-hmm.
0: and, it's, it's not anything, mm-hmm. you know, it's not a thing, it's not a thing. for, for the, us and the family. And, you know, he goes to school and, and pretty much everybody respects that. Yeah. And it's, uh, I mean,
2: such a glorious time for him to be a kid. It really, it, you it, know? it is.
0: And, and, and I, I really could not want a better environment for him to, to grow into himself.
2: Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Well, and there's, there's a beauty to it happening, um, in celebrity as well. Yeah, uh, uh, Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt's kid I think it's I think it, Shiloh I, I Shiloh is the name of the kid wants to be called John now yeah there's a she wants to be called John now she wants to be known as John uh, I don't know if she's decided that she's John wants to be recognized as gender male or she gender female wants to be called John I don't know what the details of it are but just the idea that that could happen in public. And that the parents wouldn't be like, no, 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 you're going to ruin our careers. Like, they're like, fuck it, well, do it. Whatever. Must, Call must
0: kids. Uh Trans, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and the Wachowskis, uh, we used to be the Wachowski brothers now that did the Matrix. Now it's just the Wachowskis because there was actually you
1: know, hints of that in the Matrix movie. One of the characters in the first one, uh, I can't remember her name because she was a ancillary character, right. one of the rebels. Uh, she wore the white with oh, the, uh, the buzz cut. Switch
2: was it? Switch? She's all yeah. white, all white, very very. Androgynous. Yeah, it was switch. yeah, yeah, yeah. One of
1: the reasons why they cast her was because it was helping him deal with his gender. At the
2: yes, time. yeah, and you know, I think those often like we see it in sci-fi and I think anyone that's so glad you
1: remember the name, by the way. Yeah.
2: (laughs) And it was like a switch and apoc and a bunch of others. But I remember, um, like, you know, the thing with sci-fi, there was a, a movie, so not a movie, a book, uh, I believe it was a Clive Barker book. It was weave world was the name of the book. And there's a character in it. Um, I want to say the character's name was something like Poe or something like that. But what was interesting is the character was, Androgynous to the nth degree. It, it there was zero gender, and the character's nature was fluid in that the character intuitively understood what you were attracted to and became that. So um, like a
0: chameleon of sorts.
2: Yeah, but it but the character wouldn't become gender female or gender male. Just the surface of the character, wherever you had contact, would change to whatever you wanted, whatever you were feeling yeah if you wanted to feel muscles the muscles would appear if you wanted to feel long hair the hair would appear huh. but it it would never really decide on this or the other it was just fluid For in the its moment. nature yeah. and its nature was that that it was absolutely fluid and would never define itself huh. it defined itself the nature of the character was to be it, it's, it's purpose was to exist in whatever state it existed in the moment. And it, it's, you know, in science fiction, we see that. We see that with androids that are neither, like, they're non-gender specific androids. We see robots that are non-gen, you know, R2D2, male, female. Like, does it matter? C3PO. Oh. Probably male. Oh, come on. So C three PO. come, <laughs> come on. on. No, it's like it, it is like C three is you know, part of the comic of the comedy of C3 Airport is that he's such a dandy. Yeah. Right? Yeah. He's like there's such a fet dandy <laughs> character, you know? Yeah, um, when you can
1: design a robot you can design a robot. Yeah. And someone deliberately gave it that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, but there's in science fiction we see that a lot. I think in science fiction we see Um, the exploration of genders and nonspecific roles or exploration of the roles, you know, in Star Trek, um, in the deep space nine uh, series, there was an enormous exploration of women's rights through the Ferengi species of the, the, you know, these, I'm going to really nerd out here, but on Ferenginar, you know, they couldn't, they couldn't, women couldn't be clothed. They couldn't be in public. They couldn't do business. And by the end of that series, one of the matrix of the family basically becomes like the most powerful person in their society and drives the whole change of sex in their society. And one of the most bigoted, um, misogynist characters in the whole show becomes one of the greatest proponents of women's rights mm. because his mother becomes the head of this new thing he's, and he's, he's sort really wrong the story right yeah exactly so cork who who ran yeah. the bar, so he you know he starts off like he's at the beginning of the show, he's despicable in the way he treats female characters. he's like, you're lucky, I get let you wear clothes in public you're don't ask for a raise, you're lucky you even have a job, you're only yeah. good for one thing, and by the end of it he's like don't tell my mother what to do. She can do what she wants. She's, you know, <laughs> she's a powerful woman. It's Only in sci-fi can you explore that because you can't explore that in modern-day dramas, modern-day comedies in the same way because you're held to these conventions and standards whereas you can create worlds in sci-fi where you can travel forward in time where the problem's been solved and they can really kind of shine a light on it and say, we don't deal with race. Why are you guys so stuck on race? We're a way more evolved species and they're not pointing at one country or one population or one human race. They, as a alien race are like, you guys are so archaic. We don't deal with black or white. Like, you know, it's not a thing. Mm. It's not even a thing. You guys are, are stone age compared to us. And it really holds that mirror up. Well,
0: the last thing uh, I want to get into, uh, hopefully we have time for it. Um, how do vibrators make me a better singer?
2: Oh, right. Okay. Should should
0: I go to karaoke with a vibrator?
1: (laughs) Oh, this was a serious
2: question. This was this was, is a serious this was no this is, this actually is a serious yeah, actually, question. He was
0: taught, one of the things that fascinated me about uh watching this discussion was that apparently I could take
2: vibrator and wear it and become a better singer. Right. So there's there's a there's a course um through University of Calgary. He was a he's a Canadian professor who uh was looking for a way to help singers that he's teaching um and and, and working with to learn better tone resonance and to learn to find their voices, but also a way to um, help singers vocal cords and warm up. And that, you know, just all the things that singers have to do. Singers deal with vibration as a tool. That's Mm. what they do, right? Um, it's, It's about manipulating your vocal structure and controlling your breath and speed of breath and palate and glottal palate in a way that allows you to create a very specific note. What this professor did is he took um, he took uh, it's specifically the Lilo Siri model, um, which resonates at 110 Hertz. So the human voice, on, generally speaking, the uh, human air and human voice works best from 100 Hertz range to 150 Hertz range. So what ends up happening is this vibrator works right in that tone. It works right in that, that sort of resonance and they would what, what this teacher would do is he would have you hold it to specific spots on your throat or on your forehead the crown of your head and you would feel that resonance through the bone conduction of your skull or through di- directly through your throat and what it would do is it would vibrate the note that you were singing in a way that allowed you to hear sort of a quarter tone above and a quarter tone below the note you were singing and find Mm. your pitch very quickly. But also, uh, and this is sort of hard to demonstrate on on, through through radio, but when you sing, you can sing in sort of different parts of your head. You Mm -hmm. can sing from your chest voice, from your head voice. You can sing very nasally. You can sing in the crown of your head. Different sounds have different tones. You know, if you're going to sing sort of like a cabaret style, it tends to be very, like, very um, nasally, nasal. Yeah. And, you know, like if you think like musical Chicago, it's all very nasally, sort of like 1920s driven sounds. Um, opera tends to be very high up. Inside, sort of in the skull, you lift those notes and you sort of send them soaring out there. Um, rock tends to be sort of very much raspy and down low in the throat and at the back of the throat. Or you give it a little bit of heat and it goes off the top of the roof of your mouth. So this this device, when you hold it to the spaces that you want to direct the sound, it gives you a target to aim your note at. Hmm. And you sing into it and you match the resonance. And it actually, it, it remarkably improves your singing. It's actually, a, it's it's kind of a profound system because by by vibrating the skull in that space, you have a target, and you have a frequency that when your eardrums hear it, you can match that vibration. Right. So the the note that you're creating matches the vibration of the toy. That's. Awesome, and at the same time, it vibrates and massages your 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 nodes, so you actually are um, massaging and warming up, creating blood flow to the area that would otherwise be drying does it, out.
1: Does it actually help with the cheeks? Do they so end up being? Rosy? They end up really rosy. They do you get that
2: youthful <laughs> youthful singer's glow. But oh, that's yeah, good. It's 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 a really it's so it helps you sing, and
0: then after you can go cure hysteria.
2: Yeah, so if you're feeling hysterica, get a song out, and then spend probably some time like with it. a Def Leppard song. <laughs> for hysteria. Oh. Yeah, I went there. Oh wow. Will the, the thank you for coming on again, that man. That. <laughs> I really
0: appreciate you being on the show again. Yeah. You are uh, uh, just a just a blast to talk to. Uh on behalf of Joe, the producer and myself, I, I wanna thank you for coming on and uh, thank all the audience for
1: listening. Hope you're getting something from this. Oh, I'm I'm sure they will.
2: It's, uh, <laughs> how, could, how could you know? We, we covered some bases. We, vibrator sales have gone
1: up yeah. and karaoke bars have never been busier. And Skype is going to put orgies <laughs> in the next update. Oh, I can't wait. Hopefully. I can't
0: wait. Uh, yeah. So, uh, uh, thank you for listening. Yeah. Comments or, or suggestions for shows or anything. Uh, send us an email at sexandlife2014 at gmail.com. Or,
1: uh, find yourselves up in 2015, sexandleft2015 at gmail.com.
2: Oh, right. Yeah. We don't want to be dated. Yeah. Um, no, no, gotcha. Um, and of course, uh, sibiantoronto.com. If you have any yes. questions, if you want to fire me, any inquiries for rentals, can, uh, inquiries about the service. Um, or you can tweet at me directly, at Sibian Toronto on Twitter.
0: And you, uh, sometimes you do events at uh, Oasis, right?
2: Yep, uh, going into 2015, um, there's going to be a change in the way that the events are, are run a little bit, but we've got some new fun stuff coming into Oasis, so... Check out uh, oasis aqualounge.com as well on their event calendar. We've got some fun stuff going in there. And then um, also look for me, Will McLean, or Sibby in Toronto on events calendars for lecture series coming up in 2015 or trade shows that I'll be at as well.
0: Excellent. Listen, keep us appraised of what's going on. And uh, yeah. So hope to, to see y'all or hear from y'all the next episode. Until then, be safe, have fun. And I'm going to draw this out really long because Joe's looking to turn this off. <laughs> so, <laughs> Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, Happy Kwanzaa, Blessed Solstice, uh, <laughs> <home>. Merry Hanukkah,
2: <laughs> and God bless us everyone. <laughs> <laughs>